least a good solid hour as we walk through this. And I'm going to take it in sessions so that we progressively go. Now, when we did, it's, you know, I was sitting there earlier tonight thinking, boy, it's kind of weird. Actually used the revelations. I didn't walk away from it. But anyways, uh, we're, we're going to do pretty much this first session as we did with revelations. But I, I think it's important to get the foundation. So, you know, I'm going to, I don't know if you've ever thought how the Word of God came to be written. How, how, how did it come to be the Word of God? And, and if we're going to understand the Word of God, we need to know how God gave that Word to us. Hello? I mean, I, I, re, I remember, you know, growing up and, and, and some, and, you know, with, with well-meaning individuals who said, you know, well, I'm not, I'm, I'm not sure about belief. How do you believe? You just got to have faith. You just got to trust. And I'm like, okay. But I want to get into this as we talk about Thessalonians. And we're going to deal pretty much our first several uh, sessions with 1 Thessalonians. So I want to ask this question. First of all, not question, let me make this statement. First of all, as we get into this, God was speaking to a specific company of people. We've got to understand this. He wasn't just speaking to anybody. He was speaking to a company of people who lived in the city of Thessalonica. It's important. That's important because things that were going on in Thessalonica and in the minds of the people are what give rise to God speaking to them at that specific time. That's the point. He, he, he didn't do it through just anybody as well. He did it specifically through Paul. And that's important. Speaking through Paul, it was at a specific time in history. Paul was in a particular place. He was himself under certain pressures. He was feeling certain things. And out of that, he writes to the Thessalonians. Now, I like to take a look at something like this and realize God set them up. Do you, do you understand what I mean? God, there are times that God sets us up. Because what would be here wouldn't have happened had not this taken place there. God has a tendency to set us up in that sense, and that's what he was doing here. He set the Thessalonians up with their problems and Paul up with his pressures and, and, said, to, to, and said to Paul, talk. And, and what came out was the word of God. And, of course, this was in a specific and a, a different geography, ge, ge, well, it was in a different place. We'll put it that way. God wasn't, what I'm trying to say is God wasn't talking to Ravenna. He was talking to Thessalonica. And that happened to be in Macedonia. And it happened to have a certain set of customs and culture that we don't have here in Ravenna, believe it or not. That's important. I, I, I can't just dismiss this stuff. I have to understand it. These people were coming from a very different thought life than we do. 
and they lived in a different time in history, and that's part of the Word of God. So we need to understand their customs and their culture and to find out why they were thinking the way that they were thinking. So that's the setup. Certain people in a certain city called Thessalonica, and they're under a certain pressure, a kind of pressure that's basically saying, help, okay? And, and there's Paul. At this point, he's about 200 miles down the coast, and he's under certain kinds of pressures himself. He reaches out and says, I've got to help you. I've got to help you. So you've got this help, and you've got this, I've got to help you. And we call that the letter of Paul to the Thessalonians. So, out of all those factors, God speaks. And he speaks directly to the people of Thessalonica. Now, of course, we understand God's word is universal. His word comes to us in Ravenna. But to begin with, that word that first came, it was again, specifically to Thessalonica. So in a very real sense, when we hear that word, we overhear it. Do you understand what I'm saying? God speaks to the Thessalonians, we overhear it. And because it is the word of God, in overhearing it, it comes to us now as the living word of God. That's the idea behind it. So, I, I'm going to say this, and I hope you get what I'm saying here. It's in your notes. So the bottom line is I will never truly understand it until first I have overheard it. Okay? When I've overheard what he said to them, and that boomerangs, and it becomes the word of God to me then. Does that make sense? So in our first session, I, I want... To us to take a, a, a place of overhearing. You know how you're not supposed to eavesdrop kind of thing? Well, that's what we're going to do tonight. I, I want to see how the Word of God came to Thessalonica. And then we can see how it comes to us. That's the point. So, first, let's get it in context. Let's first look at the first time God spoke this Word and ask the question, how did it happen? Paul at this particular time is with two other individuals called Silas and Timothy. And they were in the midst of their second missionary journey. You can read that in Acts chapter 16 where it all takes place. And we're not going to go into all of that right now. But it's enough to know that he was in, his, in the midst of his second missionary journey. He would have three altogether. Now on top of that, Paul's in confusion. I don't know about you, <laughs> but it's a comfort, comfort to know myself that even Paul, okay, was in a, a place of confusion at times. Confusion that has brought him to a place called Troas. Now, you know, I would, I would honestly, if you get a chance, majority of your Bibles have in the back of it different maps and stuff. Take a look at Paul's, they usually have a map that says Paul's missionary journeys on top of it. And you can trace where Troas and where we're going to get into as far as Athens and Berea and, of course, Thessalonica and Corinth and 
and so forth. But uh, enough to say that confusion at this point has brought Paul to a city called Troas. While he is there, you'll remember he had that dream. Remember that, that, that vision of a man of Macedonia saying, come over and help us? There's also somebody in Troas whose name is Luke. And that's going to change the whole history of the church. Because Paul, Silas, and Timothy took the vision from God and took the next boat then to Macedonia. And as a result, Luke comes along. That meant that we would have the Gospel of Luke, the Acts of the Apostles written, and we'll get to the heart of what happened to Paul and in his life as a result, all because they picked Luke up in Troas. So they come to the city of Philippi. In Philippi, they had a, a tough time because, well, th there weren't too many Jews there. And uh, you've heard me talk about that, I mean, before, because in, in fact, there, there weren't even enough Jews to have a synagogue. Uh, uh, you know, they, they, they have to have 10 male Jews in order to constitute a synagogue. So obviously there aren't many Jews there, especially men. So they, they had to meet on the riverbank there with, with the people did. And, and they, they, they share the gospel with them. And you'll remember that one of the first to be converted in Philippi was a lady by the name of Lydia. And you remember what Lydia did? Yeah, she, she liked purple. I don't, I just, you know, I don't know about these people. Sorry, Aileen, since you have purple on, I just thought I'd mention that. But again, she was a dealer in purple, which meant, and, and there's the symbol, the meaning behind it, she was dealing with people such as senators in very high places. So, uh, this isn't just a typical job. This is something much more. She was one of the first there by the riverbank to give her life to Christ. And so what she does is she'll open up her home, and there, <coughs> excuse me, you had the first home Bible study of Philippi. Also, you remember there in Philippi how there was a girl who was demon-possessed who followed Paul and Silas and Timothy everywhere they went. She, she would shout out under the power of the demon to listen to these men. These are servants of the Most High God. But, I mean, that might sound okay, and what's wrong with that? But you don't need the publicity of a demon-possessed person. Hello. Well, I, I won't get in. I, you know, my biggest fear is getting sidetracked on some of this stuff to explain some of this stuff but and go a little bit further. But that's for another time. Because what happens is, and as you well know, Paul put up with this for, let's say, many days. But after putting up with it for so many days, he cast the demon out of the girl. And she had been owned by a group of businessmen who used her fortune-telling power to make money. Now she's lost her fortune-telling powers because she's been delivered. So they're going to get Paul. And remember how they were unjustly beaten, they were thrashed with a cat of what they call nine tails. It was a whip that had nine ends to it, and each one had like a piece of bone or a stone, 
or a piece of iron. And when they would thrash you with it, that, that, that whip would wrap around your side, and, 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 and as they pulled it back, it would just cut into you. And, and they were basically almost beaten to death. And when you literally, I mean, the way they would put you on the post, your feet would be up off the ground. You wouldn't fall to the ground. you just simply slump hanging there. What they would do is they would take a bucket of water and throw it on you to revive you so they could beat you more. That was the idea. They always, they were professionals always beating you within an inch of your life, so to speak. But they would never beat you to death. It was just simply within an inch. They knew what they were doing. They would then take you to jail. But this time, they were so incensed with Paul and Silas, Timothy wasn't with them because Timothy actually looks like one of them. But that's an, I, oh, here I go. I'm going to take off on it. They, they, what they would do is they would take them into the innermost jail within the jail. There, there's no windows. And remember, you know, again, Romans are masters when it comes to torture. If they took you into that innermost jail, they would put you in stocks. This this wasn't just putting you in stocks. It's referred to in history as stock torture. And that, that is because the way that they would put your body in there would twist it and contort it so that, you, you know, along with the condition of your body as it's in, you would scream out in agony. And in, in, in their case, I'm sure they probably just passed out, became unconscious. There, there's, there's, there's all the filth in there from all the other prisoners who had passed through that particular jail. They didn't clean it out. It just all ran down to where Paul and Silas was. And near midnight, Paul and Silas, having now sort of semi-recovered, because again, unconsciousness would have, been, would have set in, Paul and Silas begin to sing praises to God. And I'm sorry, but that has to be one of the most powerful statements in the New Testament concerning the joy of the Lord. That twisted, distorted body, that screaming with pain, they begin to sing praise to God. That was their statement. God is God. Hello, someone. I, I don't know what God is doing right now, personally. I don't understand, but God's goodness. It's still God's goodness. And Paul's not looking at the circumstances. He's seeing through the circumstances to see God for who he is. Hello. You got that one? Because as they praise God, the earthquakes. And, and it's an earthquake that would shake the very foundation of that jail. They didn't feel it down in the city of Philippi. They felled it up in the prison, and it would shake. So, and, and, and hitting the prison house, amazingly, all the prisoners are loosed. It, it, because what it does is it shakes it so much, it literally rips the stalks off. And they, they would fall off, and all the chains that were up, you know, you've seen all the movies. They, they put the pins, the chains in the wall, and they hang them up like this. All that just came off, came out, doors open. And, and, and I say that because at that point, all the prisoners are now free. Now, you've got to understand, the Romans had a way of making sure that all prisoners were kept in their place. The man who was in charge 
of keeping prisoners, if he lost a prisoner, one prisoner, he had to die in the marketplace. Understand this. Die in the marketplace. That's a pretty good incentive for keeping prisoners. So the warden, he runs out of the house, and it's in the middle of the night, and he sees the whole prison is destroyed, and the prisoners are all free. You remember what he did, right? He, he took out his sword, and uh, you know he got ready to commit suicide because he'd rather commit suicide than public execution. Paul could have hidden in the shadows there after he had committed suicide in a free man. But Paul jumps out, and you remember he says to, 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 to the warden, he says, do yourself no harm. I'm making sure nobody escapes. Everybody's right here. Now, I don't know if you've ever looked at it like this, but whatever the, the man had heard of Paul's message, I, I, don't, I don't really know, but it's interesting to me that he asks the right questions. What must I do to be saved? Paul said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And right there, the Philippian jailer received the Lord as a Savior. He'll bring Paul and Silas, and he'll bathe them and take care of their, 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 well, there's no nice way to put what their backs look like. The next morning, Paul and Silas leave. Now, you know as well as I do, there's much more to this story, but for the sake of time here tonight where I need to go, I want to just, just put that out there. And, and See, Paul and Silas, remember, they're not in great shape, right? I mean, they've been messed up, ripped up, cut up, contorted, and in pain. As they're, as they're, as they're, as they're leaving, they're going to travel, not by car, not by horse, by foot some 90 miles to Thessalonica in that condition. It was along what we would know as the Roman road through Macedonia. It was a main thoroughway, and it will become the main street in Thessalonica. That's key. Because that route was the main street of Thessalonica. It meant that Thessalonica was the meeting place of all the worlds. It's like the center where they all come together, especially when you take a look at it, the maps, and see how that works. Because this Roman road brought all the traffic from all over the world, again, to them. It meant that all the greatest thinking of the world was discussed on the streets of Thessalonica. It meant... If you're into trade, you are a business person, you're going to go to Thessalonica. It, it means you know what's happening in other parts of the world because you were there and you'd be bringing news to Thessalonica. It means if you got a religion, <laughs> you'll go to Thessalonica because every cult, every religion in the world found itself there in Thessalonica. Get that. Understand this. You've got to get the picture here. In fact, Thessalonica was known for its religiosity. Also, they were known for their skepticism because every religion that came in through there were, were, were very talented, were very marvelous 
at taking offerings. Mm-hmm. As a matter of fact, they wouldn't even share with you until you first gave an offering. And the way they did it, the people were, were used to being fleeced. So they were very skeptical, skeptical of anybody that had a, a, a new religious message to talk about. But at the same time, what's interesting is that they were sort of o- also open to receive it. The, the neat thing about Thessalonica is that it was a free city. And that's really contrasted against all the other cities in Rome. Thessalonica adored Rome. Rome had done this for us. Rome had done that for us. Every Roman citizen in Thessalonica would stand and they would raise their hand and they would proclaim that Caesar, he was Lord, he was God, he was Savior of our souls. That's what they would proclaim. Thessalonica was into that more than any other city for at least 100 miles around. So again, here's what I'm saying. Get yourself inside the head of Paul or Silas. You have walked nearly 90 miles. You're screaming in pain. The year is approximately A.D. 49. So if Jesus died and rose again approximately A.D. 30, this is just only 20 years later. So only 20 years ago, the resurrection had become a historical fact. Now, here you stand, right? Your back is still unhealed. It's a mess. You're in pain. You're standing there up on the hill, and you're looking down on that community from the top of that hill that's just outside the city. I can believe, I, I just do, I imagine it that they probably looked at each other, you know, Paul and Silas, that, like in a, just turning slowly, looking at each other, turning back, looking down at that big city down below them, and at each other again in that, that bloody, sore condition and ask the question, what are we doing here? We've gotten beat up in Philippi preaching the gospel, and we're going to go to Thessalonica and get another beating for doing the same thing. Oh, let's go, you know. They're afraid. And the only way that they went on into that city to preach the gospel, he said it. Paul said it was because of the power in the Holy Spirit and with a God-given boldness, we went to bring the gospel to you. Everything is against them. You got skepticism because of all the other religions that have gone on before them. So that skepticism is huge. Huge. They've tried, you know, they, they've tried all of them, you know, Thessalonians have, and now these guys show up. You know, they got another message. It's against them. That's the idea. Paul confronted that. He came to Thessalonica with love offerings from Philippi. So he wouldn't have to ask for an offering. He came with someone else's offering. And, and, and when the money, ran, as a matter of fact, I've told you about that before, how when guests come to us, it's because of offerings that they have received from somebody else. So when we receive offerings for them, it's so that we can send them off to somebody else. So that's what's happening here. And, and when the money runs out, you know what Paul does? He got a job. 
because he said he refused to take money from them because he knew what they would think. Just like all the other religions with your handout, he is saying, I am giving to you a free good news of Jesus Christ. I'm not coming for any other reason. And, and, and they began, as, as would they normally, usually, in a synagogue. Now, please understand the age and the culture. It's important. The synagogue there is not the synagogue that you and I would know today. The synagogue today has, n- has nothing to do with the Old Testament. It, 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 is, it is Judaism, which is not what we read of in the Scriptures. These synagogues read the Old Testament. They saturated their minds in the Old Testament. And they knew, they knew that Messiah would be coming any minute. If you travel, if, if you travel to synagogues, the, wor- the world is, you know, is far... Take a look at Acts 17. Everywhere you would go, you would hear them saying, Messiah is coming. They, they had the prophecies of Isaiah. That's the point. They had studied Daniel, and they understood from Daniel that Messiah should come any day. It, it was the perfect context for the good news to be pronounced in. And so Paul would go in. And by the way, I don't know if you realize this, but Paul is a rabbi. And, and so as a result of that, he, wrote, he wore the distinctive clothing of the rabbi. And so he would be in a seat at the back of the synagogue, and that seat was reserved for rabbis who were visiting. He would go and sit in the seat. That seat was called the stranger seat. That's what it was referred to. Stranger seat. You are a stranger in town. You're a rabbi. And you would like to talk to the people because you've got something to say. And when a Jerusalem rabbi, a Jerusalem rabbi showed up, now we have the the, the cream de la cream. You know, you've got, oh boy, we're going to get it now. Jerusalem. It's it's the center center of it all. And, and, And the leading rabbi would say, oh, you're a stranger in town. Come, come and speak. And Paul would go, you know, okay. And he would say, you know, you guys have been talking about Messiah. I have come to announce that he has come. And he would teach them from the Old Testament that Jesus Christ was the fulfillment of all prophecies and everything God had promised had now come to pass And it's all focused in Jesus. Maybe it would be better if we just simply read it. Acts chapter 17. Now when they had traveled through Amphilippus and Apollyon, they came to Thessalonica, and there was a synagogue of the Jews. And according to Paul's custom, he went to them, and for three Sabbaths, which equals what? Three weeks. Three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and giving evidence that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead, and saying, This Jesus whom I, whom I am proclaiming to you is the Christ. Now, we'll get into that a little 
later in more detail, but that's, that's the message. It comes and announces to them that Jesus is the fulfillment of every Old Testament passage. Now, get into their heads. That's what I'm asking us to do. And especially a man by the name of Jason. He's a businessman in Thessalonica. He was along with Articus. They are the first two converts in Thessalonica. Now, now imagine this. That, that's what I'm saying. You, you have to feel what, what's happening here. If you go to the synagogue on Saturday morning, which is the Sabbath, we started with the Sabbath the night before. It was Friday night, and now it's it's you know it's it's Saturday morning. Okay, you know just like you guys do on Sunday morning. Oh, it's Sunday. Oh, it's Sabbath. We got to go to synagogue now, and so you know you're going and you prepare yourself for it. So you you're sitting there and the one sun and and you're listening. You know you you're getting sleepy, right? <laughs> kind of thing, and 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 it's you know it's synagogue, right? And you got to go through with it. The rabbi, you know, he, he's just talking on and on and on. and He doesn't shut up. <laughs> then they introduce this guy who's walking obviously in pain. He's short. That's why I like him so much. His body is twisted because he's been beaten up so many times. In fact, they would say he, he, his legs were, were bowed out. He was bow-legged because of all the beatings he had received on his back. Now imagine, because every Saturday they've been talking about this, this Messiah business. You prayed for Messiah. You read the Psalms concerning the Messiah. You're beginning to get skeptical because all you've ever heard is, is, is one day Messiah's coming. So here stands this little fellow from Jerusalem, and he announces to you, Messiah has come. And he begins to prove it. And as you read it there in Acts 17, you hear in it the words of strong logic, there's reason, and he proved by fact that Messiah was not going to come in some flaming fire on a horse, but that he first had to suffer and die for our sins and rise again from the dead. I mean, just be Articus for a moment, can, can, or, or Jason, it doesn't matter, but consider this, this awe and, and this, this wonder, Messiah has come? You don't have to look for him anymore? You, you just have to receive him? Paul persuaded them. It's a key phrase. Paul came and explained to them he proved a solid foundation. Now, I'm going to say this to you. It's not, you know, it's what I want you to get to. I challenge, I challenge you. I really do. That's why I'm taking the time to do what I'm doing in the way that I've been doing it. But I want to challenge you to know what you believe and why you believe it. Hello? You just gotta have faith. Oh, hooey. That, I don't know if that's words or not, but anyways, I'm saying that because not only know what you believe and why you believe it, and, and because when all the world begins to collapse around you, 
You need to know why you can still say you believe in God the Father Almighty. And I know that Jesus Christ is Lord. I know it. Okay, off my soapbox. Again, Paul persuaded. And an absolute logic attended by the Holy Spirit proved that Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior and fulfilled the Old Testament prophecy. Jason, again, was one of the first people to receive that Jesus. Interestingly enough, the name Jason in Hebrew, uh, the Hebrew form of Jason, because Jason's Greek, but Jason in Hebrew is actually Joshua. And, of course, Joshua is translated as Jesus. It's interesting that the very first convert in Thessalonica to me was Joshua, Jesus, but again, his name was Jason, and that was just an extra I threw in there, so there you go. Articus. If you're wondering, by the way, where I got all this stuff, it's in Acts. I'm going to give it to you real quick, let you write it down. Acts 19, 29, chapter 20, and verse 4, chapter 27, and verse 2, Colossians chapter 4, and verse 10. I got those? No, I don't have those. So, oh, they are? Slowing down on me, R-E-U-N-D. There you have the answers right there. Acts 19, 29, Acts... That, that, that's where I'm coming from because um, those scriptures are going to tell you that Articus was one of the first converts of Thessalonica. All right? Now, another person who was one of the first to receive Christ was a name of... Sardicus, or Sarkis. He he's mentioned in, in Acts 20 in verse 4. But the thing is that I want to point out is that, that many of the leading wives of the city were also converts. It, it was, it's weird, but it was sort of the in thing in that day that the wives of leading citizens would go to the synagogue on Saturday. They were like Jews. They weren't spiritual about it. It was just the in thing to do for whatever reason. However, when they heard what Paul was saying, Acts chapter 17, verse 4 says this, And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas along with a large number of God-fearing Greeks. That, that word God-fearing, that's a term I'd love to take about a half an hour and explain to you. But it says, And a number of the leading women. This is producing a problem for me. Because here's this little rabbi that's dropped in from Jerusalem, and all these people are accepting this mess his message, and also those who were accepting the message included some of the leading richest people in town. So first of all, you've got jealousy. The old rabbi says, I've been here talking for years and nobody's listened to me. Now this guy comes in and secondly, what's he going to do with the money? He's, he's, he's made converts of the right kind of people. And jealousy just begins to happen all over the place. So Paul doesn't exactly leave the synagogue. They, they recognize that this movement is actually bigger than the synagogue. So he goes out on the streets of Thessalonica, and there he talks to the Gentiles. 
Do you remember what a Gentile is? It simply means if you, that you're not a Jew, okay? In those days, it meant you did not understand the Old Testament. You had no concept of the Old Testament because you were locked into idol worship. You worship Venus. You worship Mars, the god of war, the Roman Empire. Any god would do. It really didn't matter. You might have a, a whole shelf full of gods up there that, you know, just whatever you need, you, you pull. It wasn't, here's the thing, it wasn't only the worship of those gods. It was what went with it. Okay? It wasn't just the worship. It was what went with it. That's, that's the thing. So you would have, for example, worship, the worship of Venus, which was really, all it was, was a religious prostitution service. That's exactly what it was. Uh, and, and, and because, how do I want to put this? Because in, in order for you to worship, okay, you would you were involved with the prostitutes of the temple. If you weren't involved with a prostitute, you weren't worshiping. And there was the worship of Adonis. Remember his name? That that was just simply homosexuality. Whichever you wanted to do as far as sin is concerned, in a temple, you could find a temple, they, they would call it a religion. So that's how they worked it. So this was the Gentile condition. That's what I want you to understand. Living with the gods, this was their world condition. He doesn't go to the people, the gen these Gentiles, and say that the prophecy of the Old Testament are being fulfilled. They don't know the prophecies. He is speaking of the only and the true living God who raised his son from the dead. You have nothing but lies. I'm bringing you the God of truth. Therefore, he's saying, turn from your idols, wipe the shelf clean, and serve a living and true God. So to the, to, to the Jews, to them he said something different. To the Gentiles, again, he's saying, I bring you the God of truth. To the Jews, to them he said your Messiah has come. Please realize that for these Gentiles, they had to radically, radically turn away. For the Jew, all he needed to do was accept. Accept what he had been waiting for all these years. Everything that the Gentile understood about themselves, of God, of religion, they, they had to, within that, over on this side, then accept Christ. It's a, you know, of course, it, it, what you have is the fulfillment here of Genesis 12. You remember with Abraham that one day through his seed, all nations, all families of the earth shall be blessed. So, so the Jew and the Gentile meet together in Jesus Christ. And having accepted Jesus Christ, they are no longer Jew, they are no longer Gentile, they're a new man. In the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, amen and amen. <laughs> you, you just want to get excited, right? But uh, uh, trouble, because the leaders of the synagogue said that we've heard this for three weeks now, and we've had enough. 
You, you have turned the minds of the leading people of our congregation. You have dragged in off the streets these disgusting Gentiles. They're fanatics. All they want, said the leaders of the town, is our wives' money. That was the mentality. There was a break in the synagogue, and the Jews lost their most influential people, and they translated their anger and jealousy and suspicion into action. So there's a riot. They, they, her, they, they, what they do is they take off big old mob and they're headed for Paul and Silas and Timothy and where they were staying. You remember where they were staying? It was in the house of Jason, first convert. And in the providence of God, Paul, Silas, and Timothy were out shopping. And, 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 well, they weren't home. And so they attack the house of Jason, and they take Jason to court. In other words, they arrested him. In the magistrate's court, this is what they said was wrong, okay? The charge against them. Take a look at verse 6 of Acts chapter 17. When they did not find them, they began dragging Jason and some brethren before the city authorities, shouting, these men who have upset the world have come here also. And Jason has welcomed them. So, so they're saying, in effect, you know, and, and you've got to hear this, understand, this is how the word of God emerged out of Thessalonica. And they all act contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. Do you, do you get the picture here? Massive mob, crowd, riot, dragging Jason and others. His name is Jesus. You know, they said, oh, my gosh. That means that they have committed, when they said that, when they made that accusation, what they were saying is that they have committed high treason against Rome. They said that there's another king, another king. It's the most serious charge that can be leveled against anybody, but especially in the city of Thessalonica. At that particular time in history, the Roman Empire was full of what we would, would know in history as Jewish terrorists. I mean, these are guys that would walk around with their robes and they'd keep a, a, a knife, I'll call it, up their arm. You can call them freedom fighters. That's, that's maybe a way of looking at it all. Over Rome, there's this underground movement amongst the fanatical Jew. Their slogan was this, kill a Roman and bring a Messiah. That was their, their motto. And so every time they killed a Roman, they thought they were one step closer to bringing in the Messiah. This was so powerful and had such an influence throughout the Roman Empire that the magistrates thought that Paul, Silas, and Timothy were part of the freedom fighters. And, and, and you know, what are they doing? They're, they're talking about Messiah, right? They're talking about the king who's going to take over the world. Obviously, they've got to be one of the terrorists. And they're sneaking in. They're going to kill us all before it's all over. That's what's going to happen. Let's get rid of them first. And, and again, it was such a rampant movement that in the city of Rome, all the Jews had been expelled. You, you can read about that in, in Acts chapter 18 and verse 2 when you get a chance. 
But the emperor Claudius had written to the city of Alexandria, forbidding for them to accept any Jew inside the city, specifically, specifically those who came from Israel. Paul had talked in Thessalonica more about the second coming of Jesus than he did anywhere else. So that only added to the fury that was going on. Treason. It's the end of the empire. Bring in Jesus, and and the result is simply, you got to get these guys. So again, nothing like you know, the anointing of shopping, right, ladies? I'm, ju- I'm just saying, they're, they're out there shopping someplace, and, 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 and as a result, when the riot occurred, they didn't get them. They got Jason instead. And they said, if that man, Paul, ever raises his voice again in Thessalonica, Jason, you'll be dealt with. You stand for bail for Saul. We don't know where he is, but... We have you. So Jason was held over literally on what I would call a lifetime bail, which meant that if Paul ever preached in Thessalonica again, Jason would receive the punishment. So obviously, Paul had to leave. So very reluctantly, Paul leaves Thessalonica. You might say he he left his heart in Thessalonica. He goes on his way to the next city which is Berea. Berea was open. The Bereans, they were studiers. Uh, you, know, you know, the synagogue received them. And when he gave them facts, what they would do is they would check it out with the Old Testament, and they would conclude, you're right. But while he was having a good time in Berea, the authorities now turn on the Christians in Thessalonica. The authorities come, synagogue leaders, Gentile leaders, the husbands of those wives. They're saying, nice job getting yourself mixed up, as they approach the Christians here, getting yourself mixed up with these freedom fighters. You've been, a, you've been nothing but an embarrassment because of it. The whole family getting mixed up with terrorists. And you trusted them, didn't you? You trusted them. Paul, it, Paul enticed you in the synagogue, didn't he? And when the first smell of trouble comes, who got out of town? Your friend Paul. Hmm. Who's left holding the bag? You are, you Christians. Some friend this Paul is. We told you this would happen. Put yourself in their shoes. That's the point. The Christians in Thessalonica. This is part of how the word of God happened in Thessalonica. They had to feel those things in order for this letter to be written. So we have to feel it along with them as we overhear it. Paul goes to Berea, and that's about 60 miles uh, from, from Thessalonica. So the Jews, what happens is the Jews from Thessalonica makes sure that Paul is going to get out of the area. So they themselves turn up in Berea, and cause another riot. So Paul has to leave even Berea, and what he'll do is he'll go down the coast and come to a place called Athens. Simon and Timothy will follow later. You remember Athens in the scripture there? We'll touch on it later too, but remember, they they worshiped every 
God under the sun. They, they had altars to every god. And after they ran through every god that they could think of, they said, we really haven't found him. So they had one altar and they dedicated it to the unknown god. So Paul, you know, he comes and says, I see a very religious people here. He says, you worship every god under heaven. But he said, I have come as a representative of the one you don't know. He said, I stand before you as the representative of the unknown God. I know his name, and I'd like to introduce you to him. So he preaches in Athens. And all this time, these Sturian guys, what's happening in Thessalonica? I know what my enemies are, are saying, and, 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 and they are only three weeks old, maybe four weeks old in the Lord. How are they holding up? Those whom God had given him to care for and to nourish. He's been kicked out, and they're way up the coast now. Everything the, the enemies would love to do to Paul, they're doing to the converts. And here you are stuck. You go on to Corinth, and your, your heart is just thrown away by this. Look, look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 there. It's, it's now, remember, you know, Paul's writing to them. He says in the very first verse, therefore, when we could endure it no longer. And we'll just stop right there. I'll get into the rest of it in a minute. You know, endure it no longer. He, he grabbed that. Paul worried and he fretted over his congregation. And he had a good reason to, really. I mean, exposed to the wolves of the world, he said, I couldn't take it any longer. I couldn't stand it any longer. In fact, verse 5 of chapter 3 there says the same thing. For this reason, when I could endure it no longer, I also sent to find out about your faith for fear that the tempter might have tempted you and our labor would be in vain. Now again, he goes on to Corinth. That's what he's feeling as he goes to Corinth. Again, if you've got a, a map at the end of your Bible, just, just, just trace it from Thessalonica to, 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 to Berea over to Athens and then down across to Corinth and in Corinth. Have you ever thought about Paul being alone? And, and if you know what I'm talking about, you know the pain of loneliness is the greatest pain there is. And, and he's He's been doing, he's been traveling, he's been healing. I mean, discouraged. Understand, Paul's just like us. He's no different than any of us. And he was lonely. He was so lonely that God had to specifically tell him, stay in Corinth because I am with you. He didn't feel God was with him in Corinth. Silas and Timothy, they're up the coast. His, his cohorts in Thessalonica are being beaten up. And, he, and here I am alone, he says. He comes to Corinth, a very lonely and a very distraught man. He has to get a job. So what can you do? You're a rabbi. There's only one thing he had been trained to do, and that was to make tents. So he goes down to the marketplace looking for a help wanted sign and 
in tent-making factories, and he sees one and, and says, help wanted. And he looks at the sign over the door, and it said Aquila and Priscilla Company. And there he finds friends when he needed friends. They would be the people who would stick with him for the rest of his life. He sits there on the floor, and out of goat's hairs, he begins to make tents. One day, through the door of the tent factory, there comes Timothy. Wow. He comes all the way from the north down. He brought an offering. Paul wants to know, what, what's happening? What's, what's happening back there, back there in Thessalonica? Oh, says Timothy, they're, they're a lot more mature than you would ever think. In fact, when we go up and down the coast, Paul, it's other people that's telling us what's happened in Thessalonica. That's, that's how powerful it is. We don't have to tell them. They're telling us. All over Macedonia, down through the Algea, uh, people are talking about the converts back there in Thessalonica. But there are problems. It's good news and it's bad news. You're only there for three weeks, Paul, remember? You can't talk about everything in three weeks. In fact, you just shared long enough to cause problems. You told them about the coming. Now, throughout this session, I will be using the term second coming at times. But did you know that the expression second coming is not in the Bible? In the Bible, it's called the coming. And because we've got something in our heads, I'm going to drop some English words on you as we walk through this, the word coming in the Greek is parousia, parousia. I, I want to drop that word in your head so you can maybe start realizing a paradigm shift concerning the old word. It's not the second coming, it's the coming. Parousia, Paul had, had spoken of this. Parousia means the immediate presence. It means ushered into the presence of. It's like if you had an interview with the president right in the Oval Office, that would be parousia. You're, you're in the presence of. It was spoken mostly of being in the presence of someone of royalty or high command. And Paul says he's coming. He's parousia. And they're full of this, this, this word parousia. And of course, they thought, this is going to happen any day. The coming is going to take place. And, and, and I know what the movie says that might be out there or was out there the, you know, for four days, left behind or something. We've talked enough. But 2,000 years ago, they thought he was coming next week. They really did think that, honestly. Parousia, the coming, the standing in the presence of the king of kings. There was a lot of excitement going on. And then someone would go and die. Oh, man, that's so tough. They missed the parousia. He's coming next week and you died on Friday. Not good. But that's how they felt, literally. He's coming next week. People quit their jobs. 
They stopped working because he's coming next week. Well, these, these poor baby Christians, they, they needed encouraged. They were discouraged by the trials they're going through. The synagogue leaders are, are saying, come on, you guys. Let bygones be bygones. Let, let, let's forget the past, okay? Come back to the synagogue. You were taken in by a bunch of terrorists, but we'll forget about it. You forget about it. Come on back. They're discouraged. They're sitting around their homes in their home meetings saying, should we go back? Is there really anything to this? There's a lot of good things that are happening, but there, there are problems. Paul, at this point, is, is really torn and full of tension. His, his children are not only under pressure of persecution, but there are problems concerning the second coming. It says there's only one thing to do. I have to write them. Please understand, Paul did not have a clue that we would be studying this letter 2,000 years later. He's writing a note to the friends in the north. There's a cry up there of baby Christians saying, help! And Paul, with a pastor's heart, says, I've got to help them. There's a problem here. There's pressure. He says, I'm going to write a note. And I hope you understand what I mean when I say the word of God emerging. Because God set them up for that. He made them under pressure. He gave Paul a broken heart for them. And out of that came the word of God. It's what he called a note to his friends. And it becomes the living word of God in 2,000 years of history. Now I understand why God allowed those magistrates to forbid Paul to go into that city. God had a bigger plan than Paul did. Here's Paul chomping at the bit saying, I want to go back. I want to go back and visit my people. God said, I've given the magistrates the authority to kick you out. Why? Well, you see, there's going to be a group of people in a city called Ravenna in something called the United States in 2,000 years from now. Wow. If Paul had gone to Thessalonica, we wouldn't have, had, we wouldn't have this letter. So God sets them up, pressure, trial, problems. And out of it comes words that never would have come but for what took place. That's when Paul had, that, that's when God had more in mind than Paul. Paul had in mind Thessalonica, the immediate people to receive the word of God. God had us in mind. So they get the word of God so that we can get it. So this tiny man that we call Paul, who still has a very sore back, believe me, that is now scarred from the top down to the bottom, he paces up and down in the city of Corinth. He begins to dictate a letter. And if you want to find your way around what we call First Thessalonians, which is the, the first note that he wrote to them, let me 
just quickly give you the outlines here. That's what you have in your notes here. First of all, he greets them in the usual fashion of the day. Have you ever noticed that we sign our letters at the end? In Bible days, they signed it at the start so you know right from the beginning who's writing to you. So it doesn't say, dear so-and-so. It says, I pastor to you, Ravenna Assembly of God. That's how it starts. So first of all, the first verse is the greeting. Then he gives thanks to God for all that he's heard. And, and then, if you follow me carefully through getting inside of Paul's head here, you understand his relief and his thanks to God. So in verses 2 through 10 of the first chapter, he's just giving praise to God for all he's heard about. Then you have chapter 2. And the first 16 verses, he reminds them of how he was when he was with them. And when we get there, I will show you that what he was doing was answering people who were saying that Paul the terrorist got out of town when trouble came. He, he says that it wasn't like that at all, guys. Come on. He says, I gave my life to you to come to you. I love you guys. So he reminds them of how it all happened in chapter 2. And in chapter 2, verse 17, through chapter 3 and verse 13, he tells them how he feels about them. All the agony that he has gone through because of his love for them. Now, it, 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 it's in the light of that that Paul says, because of all God did when I was with you, now live unto God. A very practical 12 verses of chapter 4. Then he comes to the great issues, the, the para, or the great issue, parousia. Chapter 4, right through chapter 5 and verse 11. He says, he says, no, just a minute. You're all upset because some of your friends have died. And he said, let me tell you that when parousia takes place, they'll, they'll get it first. The... the they, they have lost nothing through death. He says they will come with the Lord when he comes and they will receive their resurrection body first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up with them to be with the Lord in the air. So he says, relax, guys. Come on. This is one of the greatest passages in the New Testament concerning parousia. And we would have never had it for the fact that baby Christians cried because they thought their friend had, had missed the parousia. So Paul had to write, and, 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 and now we understand parousia. They've, they've, they've been, in chapter 5, verse 12 through 22, he, he gives a, a big excitation, which includes telling those who have stopped work to get back to work. He'll even say that a second time in his second note to them that we'll cover down the road. So Timothy returns to Thessalonica with that letter, that stuff in his pocket. If, if you haven't, I really want to encourage you to sit down and read that entire epistle in one setting. Get into the mind of Paul and Thessalonica as Paul wrote it to them. Feel the word of God coming to you. This group from Thessalonians with this letter that we're going to get into, there are certain things 
but you're going to have to heal. These, I mean, think about it. Three weeks is all that Acts records Paul being there. Now, I won't even get into that. that, that I mean, just that's not very long. And from absolute paganism to dynamic life in Christ, that's all they had was three weeks. My goodness. I'd like to know how, I'd like to know what Paul shared with them. Because that's power. I know people who've been born again for the last 40 years, they still can't live consistently for a week. I mean, these people, three weeks in Christ, under such torment, under pressure, and yet from them, they sound out the word of God. I'm interested in this letter for that reason. And this letter talks more about the second coming. And, and, and there I just said it, but that isn't in the Bible. It speaks more of the parousia than any other book in the Bible. It translates that, it translates that into the dynamic now living where there is so much speculation when it comes to parousia. Friend, the Bible never speculates. If what you believe about the returning of Jesus does not change your life now, then throw out what you believe. It, it, it's only speculation. That's the problem. This book is going to teach us how to walk now in the light of the parousia of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen and amen. We'll get into more of this next week. I don't want to. I want to keep going. But I know better. Stand with me, would you please? Stretch out and touch somebody next to you. <laughs> Just stand with me for a moment. You know, I keep hearing an old hymn in my head. This is my story. This is my song. Praising my Savior all the day long. This is my story, this is my song, praising my Savior all the day long. Lord, thank you for your word, for leading us, not without, but with logic and truth and reason and this sure foundation and our foundation is indeed our risen Lord and Savior Jesus Christ I pray you will bless encourage stir up the heart as well as the mind as we continue to delve into your word and to chew on that which you have given us as we overhear what you said to the Thessalonians and realize it's for us now. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen and amen. Can we give him praise one time? He's